So we're in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 36. Um, hey, I, I'll, I'll throw this out here. Jesus is a terrible patch. He's a, he's a terrible patch. And um, uh, for a lot of us, when we first encountered Jesus, um, he might have been an annoyance, a, a, a rock of stumbling or, st- or a stone of offense, right? Sorry, stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. He might have been like, you hear about him, you're like, ah, I don't want them. This Jesus gets in my way. He's that stone of stumbling or he's the rock of offense. For that Jesus really insults the worth and merit of me, and he, therefore he was that rock of offense. But a lot of us, first time we came to Jesus, we were looking for a patch. Something was broken in our life. We were sad, we were hurt, we were lacking, and we needed a patch, we thought. And so we check out this Jesus guy and his message, and we're like, hey, I can say that prayer, or I can, I mean, it sounds kind of doable, and I can get my Jesus patch, and my tire of life can be reinflated, and I can roll on. But the problem is, once you listen to Jesus more than just a little soundbite, you'll find that Jesus isn't a patch. Jesus is everything. So if you try to take the one who's everything and use him as a patch on your self-agenda, um, this will not work. It will, it will agitate you. So you will find him to be a stone of stumbling, right? One of the things that he does in, in transforming us, you know, my kids, when we're growing up, we use this language of uh, when they're really young, uh, two types of people, God lovers and self lovers, right? And God transformed us from self lovers into God lovers when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we move from being a self lover and trying to patch our lives with Jesus to being a God lover, um, he becomes the center and he moves us out of our life that needs patching into all of who he is and what he's doing. I mean, we are all of a sudden brought into something way, way bigger and way, way older and way, way more future than we tend to think. Our passage today as has been, we're in the end of, we're finishing off Romans 11 and 10 and 9 before that, and a little bit of 8 even, these four chapters in Romans have been God lifting us up into the big picture of what he's doing. And some things that he had previously not revealed. Uh, in scriptural language, New Testament, you're going to hit the word mystery. So uh, every now and then it's kind of helpful just for your Bible interpretation knowledge that there's certain words you should be aware of. When the New Testament says mystery, we Americans tend to think, ooh, something hidden. When the New Testament says mystery, every time it's something hidden that has now been revealed. It's a very important thing to know. Whenever you hit mystery in New Testament, it's not, it's not hidden anymore. It's now been revealed. And it's usually talking about something right around it, like this thing at one time, particularly in the Old Testament, it was all hidey hidey, sh- shadows, shades, and hints, and Easter eggs. But now it's been unfolded. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are unfolded mystery. They are explanations of things that God had not explained any place else. He had hinted at them. He had led little prophetic statements into them, but now they're unfolded. And so as we exit this section and we start to move into 12, and 12 is the shifting of gears in Romans of like, okay, now we're going to start talking about, well, what do you do with it, right? So Romans 12, 1, boom, we're going to hit a big shift um, of us actually now, well, now with all the stuff that we learned from 1 through 11, now what do we do with it? It's very action-oriented. So we're bringing that to a close. The, the title of our sermon today is in awe, in awe of the Depths of God. In Awe of the Depths of God. Our first piece, we've already read this, the text here, so I want to just say our first piece today is this. God is now gathering from the nations, but will, but will give Israel revival. So let's kind of continue on from last week where God was explaining some really in-depth details of how he did make this deal with these people called Israel. Actually, he made the people called Israel and made this deal with them and said, I'm going to work through you. 
And as history's gone along, those people have continued to take the good things that God has given them and have, have sank themselves with those things, right? T- time and time again, God has given forgiveness and restoration, and they fall off again and again and again, fall off. And there's this history, and eventually at some point in time, God goes, okay, I'm going to shift my focus from you because of your disobedience to the worldwide, all of the non-Jewish people around the world, of which is m- most of us, us South Americans and us Irish and us Icelandic Vikings and whatever you happen to be rolling. Okay, if you're not Jewish, it goes all the rest of us, right? And so that was part of God's plan. But it wasn't explained very thoroughly by God in the Old Testament. It was just kind of hinted. He said it's going to go out, it's going to go to the nations. But it really wasn't unfolded. It was truly a hidden mystery. New Testament, he goes, and here's how it all works. And we're like, oh, that's amazing. The problem is we didn't grow up in the Old Testament, so we didn't have some of those hanging questions. We just, we just came in at the end of the movie in some sense. We're saying, well, what's so amazing about that? We don't have an appreciation for some of the things that have been slowly revealed by the Lord. So one of the great questions in 9, 10, and 11 is, well, has God's word failed? Because he says he's going to cut this deal with these people named the Jews, the land of Israel, and they've fallen away. Has his word failed? Or second of all, second question, verse 1 of chapter 11 has God rejected his people? So is his word pa- powerless? Is it fickle? And number two, if that's not the case, has he rejected the people? And he's going through a lot of work to demonstrate the case that that is not the case here. So look in verse 25. 25 is God is now gathering from the nations, that's all of us Gentile people, but will give Israel revival. <clears throat> verse 25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this partial hardening where God is still providing true believing remnant in Israel is for a measured time until God has finished gathering in his children from among the Gentiles, from all of us Australians and North Americans and everything, this, this season, right? So he's in the season of gathering from the nations. Um, but then he comes back and does this great work where he brings revival to Israel. Verse 26, and in this way all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, which is another name for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so God will come back and do a fresh new work on the people of Israel, a revival amongst the people of Israel. Um, Whatever you've heard about the Asbury revival, whatever it is, great, not, it's going to be nothing. Compared to this, a, a nationwide, people-wide rever- revival where the Spirit of God will come upon the people of Israel and he will revive them. He will not simply excite them and it will not be um, a years-long worship service and those kind of things, but a true transformation of the heart. And what the work he will do is described in verse 26 and 27. He will banish ungodliness from them. He's going to take that ungodliness out of them, amongst the people. And number two, in verse 27, he will, this will be my covenant when I take away their sins. So the reviving work starts in a convicting and a repenting work, right? He transforms the heart. It's not just simply they're going to say, all right, oh, okay, we like the Jesus guy now. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, way, way more than that. They will submit to that, but what Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, will do is he'll bring repentance from the heart. Friends, that's that's what Jesus does. That's what he does to us Gentiles now. It's what he does to us Jewish people now. It's what he will do to the the people of Israel in the day to come. His saving work to us is not a patch on us. It's a transformation of us. He chases godlessness and earthiness out, 
and resets us in who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And he says so much about it, and then he doesn't say so much too. He exposes us to a lot of what he's doing. So God's saving work for future Israel is one of true revival, pulling out of sin and rebellion. My question for you right now, if, if you happen to be a Jewish guy or lady in the room or Gentile, is this what he's doing in you? Um, is, has he brought you to confession of like, I'm a person that needs mercy, I'm a person that needs grace, and I happily do that. Can you go back and take communion and take that piece of bread and say, I was a sinner and I needed a substitute. I needed a substitute because I was full of sin. Can you, can you do that with a good conscience? Can you do it freely? Um, I've had a number of conversations recently, some of us are in the room and some of us are not in the room, uh, literally about, about the joy of embracing your sin. Um, I think that for me, one of the great great gifts of the Lord to me was um, in my late teens when the Lord, I think, really opened my eyes up, number one, to my sinful nature as I saw it work out my life through uh, a lot of pride, lust, all that kind of stuff. And I saw it and it grossed me out and it was appalling. And then wave two, he let me read the Bible, right? Then I saw the real problems like dead, enemy, Child of Satan. All the, I mean, all those things. You're just flipping pages going, dang, dang. And it's all said in the most gracious ways. Because this is who you were. And my heart is going, that's absolutely right who I was. And it's why I wrestle with sin still this day. Because that's where he took me out of. That's that sinful nature. And it was so liberating. I, I, I feel like there's like one last swing of the sledgehammer. I remember it well. I won't go to this story where I feel like it just shattered this massive wall of pride in my life. I'm not saying I'm not proud, but like it broke it down in a way that's never, ever come back in that way. And in that moment, uh, I was explaining to someone this week, like it was just, it was nuts. Like I just all of a sudden, like in this moment, God revealed to me how deep my sin and pride was in all my relationships and all these things I did and the sports I played, all that kind of stuff. I just saw it everywhere. And, and while it was appalling, it was extremely freeing. It was the, like the, the hidden infection had finally been brought to light. And I could sit with people. I remember sitting down with a with dude who was trying to pursue me and trying to love me. But I didn't want his love. I didn't want his pursuit. Kind of weirded me out a little bit. And, uh, but the reason was because I was a prideful chump. That was the reason. So I needed to sit down with him when I did, and I'm just, I just I'm saying, I'm so sorry. You've been trying to love me and pursue me and ask me questions, and I have not because I've just been prideful. And the Lord has just like torpedoed me with that. It's just so liberating to see what God does. God will liberate you from the thing that most kills you, and the thing that most kills you is not inconvenience. The thing that most kills you is your sin, and that's what God does. He frees us from our sin. He frees us in the forgiveness of Jesus, then he liberates us from the dominion of sin in our life, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 28. But as it regards the gospel, kind of deep water statement here. We'll move quickly through it. As it regards the gospel, they, that's the Jewish people, are for your sake enemies. Catch this. They're being treated as enemies by God for your sake so that the gospel may go out to Gentiles. Remember, that's the argument. Harding has come so that the gospel would push out of Israel to the nations, right? And so, he says, as regards the gospel, they are for your sakes um, enemies, but as it regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Or some of you guys have the patriarchs, great translation. So since God has proclaimed to the forefathers, who are those? That'd be 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and a couple of those old guys way back there in the day. Um, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, and God had proclaimed to them that the Jewish people were his chosen people, and that he will never go back on this. This is an eternal covenant, he says, I make. So this is why the question is out there. Over in Rome, by all these Gentiles who've learned about this Jewish Messiah, of like, wasn't there this promise that they're going to be his people, but it doesn't look like the people are following him? Has God not been good to his word, or has he booted his people? He's going, no, no, no. This is an eternal covenant God has promised to the forefathers. Verse 29, why? For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So I think it's really interesting in this is it starts off with, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. That's the first verse of verse 25. That's a problem with us because we are wise in our own eyes. Whenever, whenever God tells us something, we almost always come up with a new problem. When he gives us a gift, we usually gluttonize on it and do too much with it. So the people of Israel, when God says, hey, I'm going to accept you. I'm going to make my na- my, you my nation. Instead of them going, oh, man, we are so amazed that you would make us your nation and, and amazing. They're like, yeah, we're all that. Um, and what should have stunned amazed them, right? And so when he says, I'll give you forgiveness. I'll make you righteous. They're like, oh, yeah. And we do this in the church. I am righteous. No, no, no. Jesus is righteous and made you righteous. We always attach that. So we have communion in the back. We're always remembering that the righteousness you have comes from Jesus. But we always do this as humans. We take the good things and we have problems with them. And then we take even knowledge and have problems with them. So in 9, 10, and 11, there's all this language more thick than anywhere in the scriptures where it talks about God being in control of all things. This starts this, this great debate that we have in the church all the time about God's sovereignty and free will and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, you know why we have that? Because God opened the can on it. It's not incidental problems we run into. God has spoken about all of it. And then what we do, instead of listening to what he says, is we tend to rise up in our own opinions and get wise in our own eyes, and we tend to get in huffs about it versus listening to what he says and emphasizing the things that he is emphasizing for the reason he wants it emphasized for our benefit and our rest and our humbleness and our gratitude and our joy and our life and our confidence in him. We do weird things with it. And so he's opening it up and he says, hey, I've made you, I've made these people my people and I've now brought you into my people. But listen, I don't want you to get arrogant with this because in the end, the last week, what they, what they start to do, the grafted in branches, oh, all of us Gentiles were like, <laughs> branches were cut off so that I might be stuck in there. He says, no, that's just foolishness. That's foolishness. Remember, it's the root that supports you, not you that supports the root. If you have mercy, you are stunned if you get it. Mercy stuns and brings us to amazement. If you are one of God's elect, that stuns and brings you to amazement does not, when you believe it, bring you to arrogance. So arrogance is a problem. Whenever God shows us the inside and how great he is, we tend to get arrogant with it. Even the point, we tend to tell him that he's wrong. So when God shows us of his massive nature and his thinking and his plan, we, we little people go, that's dumb. Doesn't make sense to me. So it's dumb. Like we're just so arrogant or thinking towards the great God of heaven as he portrays things. So he says, hey, I don't want you to be arrogant in your own minds. And how do you become unarrogant? He goes, you look at my revealed mysteries. That's how you become unarrogant. Look, eyes back down to my text, boys and girls. Right? Like listen to these great things that I'm pouring out. This is the solution to the arrogance of our hearts. We get informed 
as to what God's doing. Because remember, that's what God's doing. God is lifting you out of a life that needs a patch into something incredibly big. The plan and the purpose and the work of God across all of the universe and time and history. He's bringing you up into that that is way, way bigger than your education, entertainment, and love plans for your 80 years. Way, way bigger. It's an amazingly humble thing, and it brings our minds out of arrogance. So God's current move is that he's gathering his children from the Gentile people of the world, and when he's finished, he'll do a great revival work amongst the Jewish people and bring them to repentance of their sin. And why will God be returning to his revival work in Israel? Because verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This being the argument that what God starts, God always finishes. What God says will always come to pass. So if he says, you're my people forevermore, they are his people forevermore. His word does not fail, and he does not reject people out of his love. All that Romans 8 stuff, all that love that he is just smeared across all of us, and just we're, when we study Romans 8, and 8 time and time again, it's just so full. Some would say that the greatest chapter in the Bible, it is just chuck full. What is it? It is the love of God. And he, you don't lose that. He doesn't take you out of that if you're in that. He wants you to rest in that. He doesn't want you to like swim upstream every day to just get a little bit and just hope that it comes back tomorrow. He wants you to know you are his loved son. You are his loved daughter. And that isn't going to change if it is true. He's not going to remove his love off you. He's not going to remove his covenants off of anybody. So him circling back to the big picture, his word is true. He will not reject his people. God is always faithful to to every promise he makes throughout history, including his covenanted love towards us and the Jewish people. God never moves on from his love or his word, ever. Second piece, God is providing mercy for universally disobedient mankind. God is providing mercy for disobedient mankind. I changed the word, I guess. Verse 30 to 32, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, and do I hear an amen from my brothers and sisters? Amen. Just as one time we were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy. How? Through their disobedience. And God's great plan, as they disobeyed, gospel spills out of Israel to all of us and we get the mercy. Verse 31, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, to us, they also may now receive mercy. So the mercy goes out from Israel and the mercy comes back to Israel. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy in all. There's not a soul on the planet, Jewish or Gentile, that is not in need of mercy. None escape that. None are worthy by themselves. So all are consigned under mercy. Um, The end of God's plan in the disobedience of Israel was and is to provide the undeserved and needed mercy for both Jews and Gentiles. We are all disobedient, needing mercy, which is now made available to all of us. God has opened up to our eyes a little bit how he did that and why he did it. He opened up a little bit of it. Some mystery has been revealed. And it's important. He wants you to know that part that he's opened up. But he hasn't revealed all of it. And the parts that he hasn't revealed don't disqualify or reduce the importance of us needing to know the parts he did reveal. So, so Jesus, the one hanging on the cross who rises from the dead, you know what he wants you to know today? He wants you to know how this all works together in his heart. He wants, he's going to help you with it. It's going to humble you. 
But don't take what is given to you to humble you and cause you to be arrogant and rise up and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Don't be a small little person in the corner with the almighty God exposing his heart and go, um, instead of thank you, let me think about that. You mean, you mean all that mercy to me? You mean, you mean that my mercy is that costly? Instead of like responding as we should to these things to say, that doesn't make sense. That sounds like a bad plan. You should hire me as your counselor. Like, don't, don't be a wee little person in front of a massive, overwhelming God. It's a foolish thing. It's, it's just doing what these people have done time and time and time again through this text, right? Relying on their own works. Getting confident in God, giving uh, cocky in God's grace, those kind of things. So don't, don't be a wee little person in front of a massive, massive God. And then Paul brings chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 to a close in the statement of praise and amazement. Look at verse 33. By the way, you should memorize this. Just, just, just get it in there. It's not that hard. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I know NIV people, it says a little bit different there, but love me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. So this is where God says, looky, 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 looky. Then he goes, and then I'm not going to show you any further. Like I've taken you on a journey that is way above your pay grade and amazing things, but you should tell from the journey I've taken on you that you can't journey in my mind on your own. It says here, in other words, uh, and for four chapters now, God has taken us on this amazing journey of the caves and mountains of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, and it has been way too big for us to fully grasp. I mean, we can barely grasp the things that he's shown us, much less the things that are outside of the light in the tunnel. So they're way too big for us to fully grasp and way beyond our ability to perform those things. So his judgments, so his plans, his declarations of justice, they are not able to be searched out by us. That's what the careful observer will notice the word unsearchable means. You cannot search it out. You can't master it. You can't master it. He has revealed parts, many parts of his judgment to us out of love and help to us, but we don't know it all, can't know it all. His judgments are too high for us. We cannot come close to searching them out. And then it talks about his ways, his power and actions. They are inscrutable, or, or uh, NIV says beyond tracing out. Uh, literally, the word here means um, following footsteps. You can't, you can't trace, you can't walk in the footsteps of God in these paths. Like, so God has showed you his mind, and you're, you can't plummet God's mind. And then he shows you his ways, what he's doing. And clearly, too, we can't follow what he's doing. We, we, we can't do anything he's doing in the book of Romans. He is he's showing his pathways and what he does are infinitely beyond us. So they are inscrutable, or as I might want to say, they are unfollowable. You and I cannot do the things he does. We can't act like him. We can't perform like him. We can't keep up with him. He's utterly superior. He is utterly praiseworthy and worship worthy. Look, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Isaiah 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The answer to this is no one. No one. Who's known my Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? No one. He is supreme in wisdom and knowledge, completely without parallel in all of humanity or the angelic realm. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one has been his counselor. Verse 35. Or who has 
given a gift to him, Job 41, who's given a gift to him that it might be repaid? So who's broed God something that God goes, well, <laughs> I owe that back to her? Answer is nobody. He's the giver and lacks nothing. You know, uh, where this kind of hits us sometimes is sometimes we're like, man, well, I gave him a lot of money. I gave him a lot of time. I gave him my beautiful voice, my face. I gave him my, my body. I gave him my life. It's his gift. You're not giving him something. You're not giving him something that he owes back to you. He is the giver and lacks nothing. Um, he has, he, uh, no one has anything that wasn't given to them by God in the first place, and God never lacks or never owes anything to anyone. Um, he may promise us things. He promises things, and, 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 the, and he promises us astounding things in the gospel, astounding things. He'll take you home when you die. He'll be with you now. Uh, you ladies, you guys learned a lot of things this weekend, like about the promises of the life to come. Where you give up your life now, you surrender your life now for a life that is eternal and a life that is rich and deep and powerful and beyond comprehension to understand the glories revealed in you. Amazing promises. And in that sense, he will answer those promises. You could say he owes his answers and because those are obligations to his own promises. But never, never has God in need of anything. He's not in need of our praise. He's not in need of your money. He's not in need of my merit or our mouths. He is, it is absolutely right and absolutely necessary for us to dedicate our praise, our money, our mouths, um, and our service to him. But he doesn't need it. He doesn't need a house made with hands. He doesn't need these things. He's quite sufficient, always has been. He wasn't sitting there in his Trinitarian unity in times past, lonely, bored, and go, man, what should we do today? Let's make earth. Um, uh, or I need, I need someone to adore me. Uh, guys, I need someone to adore me. Like, that's not the heart of God as expressed in the Scripture. The Trinitarian God was infinite in satisfaction, infinite in delight within themselves, himself. And they, out of generosity, made us. Out of generosity made this world to share the glory of God that others of us might be able to participate and be part of it. That's who God is. He's never needed a thing. No one has given him anything that needs to be paid back. And it ends in verse thir- 36. And this is the, this pinnacle point. I, just, I really want you to truly think about this. This is just a, um, you, you, you need this verse. I need this verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Incredibly simple, incredibly global. To him be the glory forever. Number one, why the worship to God? He is source he is means, he is end of all things. He is source, he is means, and he is end of all things. First one, all things are from God. God, the source of all things in your life and heart and universe, he is that source, and he is the rightful recipient of credit and honor for all of that. He is the source, and he deserves all credit and honor for it. My question for you, store this one up in your heart, just a moment of reflection. Does your heart and mouth admire him as source does your heart and mouth admire him as source and do you believe truly believe that all things are from him does that reflect in your heart and mouth number two all things in life are through god he has not retreated or released anything from his power or plan not a thing so my question for you in the second one is this do you rest in and praise him for his sovereignty and him being the provider of all physical and spiritual benefits 
Is that an active part of you? Do you know that all physical and spiritual benefits come from him, that he has a plan and power and doesn't release any of it? Is that woven into your heart so that you can rest in him and not fight against the incoming plan? Number three, all things are to him. The glory and pleasure of God is the point of everything. The glory and pleasure of God is the point of everything. Everything is to him. So this third question I have for you, is the glory and the pleasure of God the unobstructed and openly proclaimed end of your life in every part of it? It's a long sentence, I'll say it again. Is the glory and pleasure of God the unobstructed and openly proclaimed end of your life in every part of it? Do you even know how to connect every part of your life to the glory of God? That's not a mocking question. It's a real question. Do you know how to commit, continue every part of your life to the glory of God? Your crafting habits, your relationships, your job, your entertainment, your dreams for your life, all these things. Do you know how to connect every single thing to the glory of God? Because the glory of God is the center part in the end of your life. It's, it's the goal to which your life was created. Who could even conceive of being any of these three things? Not us, only God. So the gospel, the good news is about God. It's all about God. We came from him, we are redeemed and sustained through him, and we're going to him. He is the rightful recipient of all of our praise and glory. He is the generous architect of existence. He is the almighty creator, righteous and perfect judge, savior and father, the treasure and rightful center of the affection and praise of all of heaven and earth. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What will the gospel do to your heart? Will it humble you or cause you to squawk like a little person in the corner against an almighty God? Will it breathe over you all that grace and all that goodness and all that like incomparable power and authority and perfection? And will you say with the end of this, like to him be the glory forever and ever. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. Or will you change and take a different route that will end poorly for you? Father, we ask you that you would help us by your spirit. I pray for the help of your spirit and a stir in us, Father, so you would revive us, maybe save us this morning in the first place, but revive us, Lord, so that the greatness of you stirs our hearts to say, oh, the depths of the riches and of the wisdom and the power of God, how your judgments are beyond searching and your ways beyond traversing. For all things are from you and through you and to you. To you be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.